Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the German Studies Review, Volume 35, Number 3, October 2012, and is titled, Defining Freemason, Compromise, Pragmatism, and German Lodge members in the NSDAP by Chris Thomas. Freemasonry and Nazis are two of the most popular subjects in popular and academic literature. Yet, exploration of where the two intersect, beyond esoteric connections and intellectual roots, have received little attention. Since the end of World War II, articles and books have concentrated on persecution of and resistance by Freemasons as holy victims, finding that they often showed complacency and even willing cooperation with the regime. But in addition to creating a victim-collaborator tug-of-war, this discrepancy says something about pragmatism, compromise, agency, and the ability of officials to act outside of established policy in the Third Reich, as well as how men who belong to a targeted group could end up serving in some of the regime's highest offices. German Freemasonry had a long history of ties to government. After arriving in Hamburg in 1737, Freemasonry quickly spread through other port cities when Frederick the Great joined. After Frederick, all but two of Prussia's kings joined the lodges, providing two reasons why so many of Prussia's aristocracy joined, exclusivity and royal patronage. The French Revolution, Bismarck's turn against the National Liberal Party, and the refusal of Wilhelm II to enter the lodges largely ended aristocratic membership and royal patronage, leaving the majority of members from the educated Burgatum, who remained politically conservative nonetheless. By 1930, most Freemasons came from the demographics that increasingly supported the Nazis throughout Weimar and into the 1930s, as well as serving in those professions that voluntarily and willingly worked toward the Fuhrer. Despite all this, the Nazi party, from its earliest days, numbered Freemasonry among its enemies due to the fraternity's internationalism, its egalitarian and tolerant ideology, its ties to Jewish history, Masonic myth claims that fraternity originated at the building of King Solomon's Temple, and its esotericism, which is ironic considering the close connections between Weimar esoteric clubs and Nazi ideology. Many pillars of the early Nazi party were former members of Ariosophist groups like the Germanen Orden and the Thule Society. Even Hitler, though never a member of either, once remarked that the party ought to copy the hierarchy and order of the Masonic lodges, if not their ideology. After the seizure of power, when scores of former Freemasons sought admission to the party and its auxiliaries, the Nazis stood at an impasse. <clears throat> These were men whose skills, such as administrative, legal, business, and medical knowledge, were essential to the success of the regime. But on the other hand, these men belonged to a prescribed organization, even though most had joined for social and professional reasons, something even Hitler admitted. After all, joiner's culture was a significant part of bourgeoisie professionalism, and most Freemasons belonged to many professional and social organizations. 
There were Masons, however, like symbolic Grand Lodge Grandmaster Leo Muffelman, who demonstrated that some Lodge brethren truly believed in Masonic ideology. The regime could make allowances for social joiners, but it dreaded accidentally letting in men like Muffelman. To ban all former Freemasons was foolish, but to admit all applicants would be equally so. The party needed a balance, which came in codifying what separated true Freemasons, like Muffelman, from the social joiners. But time and again, the party established the limits of acceptable, only to redefine those limits a year or two later, making them more inclusive. In less than a decade, the party went from a total ban on Freemasons in the party, civil service, and the military, to granting amnesty to the majority of former Freemasons. Although the matter did not come to a head until the 1930s, the issue of Freemasons in the party had started in the 1920s. In 1926, Hitler established what became the Reich Committee for Investigation and Settlement to settle internal party disputes. Two of the issues that the Wuxia had to address were the admission of former Freemasons as new members and the continued membership of Freemasons already in the party. By the early 1930s, the Russia urged a total ban, though allowing Hitler to grant exceptions. The Volkischer Beobachter echoed the ban in a 1933 article titled No Freemasons in the NSDAP. As for exceptions, Hitler granted these in very rare cases to men whose entire lives bear witness to their indisputably nationalist feelings. Policy was easier to announce than enforce, however, and enforcement varied by region. Some local offices began either admitting ex-Masons or refusing to throw out former Lodge members already in the party, while others strictly adhered to the policy. Those Freemasons who were denied admission appealed on the grounds that if other Freemasons were being allowed to remain, why should they be excluded? Walter Buck, head of the Russia, pointed out the paradox in a Russia newsletter. Buck acknowledged the policy of banning all Freemasons, but argued that the acceptance of honorable Germans who formerly belonged to the lodges and had forsaken lodge membership was unrefusable, but what defined honorable? Buck suggested that the party make distinctions between former Old Prussian, humanitarian, and irregular members. Unlike most European countries, Germany never had a single national Grand Lodge, instead having three, known collectively as the Old Prussian Grand Lodges. A rift in the Old Prussian Lodges during the mid-19th century over the admission of Jewish members led to the creation of the Humanitarian Grand Lodges. In 1930, a small group of humanitarian masons, led by Leo Muffelman, still upset at membership restrictions, broke away and formed the Symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany, or SGVD. The SGVD had to receive its charter from the Grand Orient of France, since none of the German lodges would grant one. But the Grand Orient was deemed irregular and not officially recognized by mainstream Freemasonry. However, both Symbolic Lodge members and the Nazis classified the SGVD as Masonic. Additionally, Buck proposed allowing more exceptions than only to those with Hitler's personal endorsement. The process, he argued, should begin at the local recruiting level. All former Freemasons, whether applying for new membership or already in the party, had to sign an Erkeldrung, a declaration of complete and total disassociation with the fraternity, both physically and ideologically. True Freemasons, Buck argued, held their lodge loyalties above all else, including national loyalty, and thus would never willingly sign the Erkeldrung. Other party officials saw problems with the party policy toward Freemasons. 
Alfred Rosenberg received a letter from Eric Hollenbach, a party officer in Berlin, echoing many of Buck's arguments. Some former Freemasons should be allowed to join. It was wrong to lump old Prussian and humanitarian Freemasons into the same pile, and listening to the anti-Masonic propaganda of dear old Ludendorff had led to labeling all lodge members as dyed-in-the-wool Freemasons. In regard to Jews, the old Prussian lodges were quite clear in their refusal to officially admit Jew members, proudly boasting that in 200 years they had never admitted a single Jew into the lodge. As for proving their loyalty to Germany, Freemasons had fought bravely in the Franco-Prussian War as well as in the trenches of World War I. At the end of the letter, Hollenbach argued that German Christian Freemasons had expressed the willingness to discard all secretiveness, fully disclose the workings of the lodges, and try to rebuild bridges between the fraternity and the party. As his last point, Hollenbach stated that the old Prussian lodges had the same goals as National Socialism, and by co-opting them rather than persecuting them, the party could gain the support of 60,000 influential men. The bottom line for Hollenbach was that most German Freemasons considered themselves just that, German Freemasons, placing national identity before lodge identity. Buck and Hollenbach made it quite clear that to dismiss Freemasons in mass was foolish, suggesting that it was possible to separate the honorable from the rest, beginning with division by Grand Lodge. Old Prussian were acceptable, while humanitarian and irregular lodges were not. However, a letter from Richard Brose, Grand Master of the Grand Lodge in Hamburg, demonstrated that some men in the humanitarian lodges supported Nazi ideology as vehemently as many in the old Prussian lodges. Division, by definition, was insufficient, and the party needed a more refined distinction. The first step toward this new distinction came shortly after the seizure of power, as more Freemasons sought entry into the party, hoping to replace the benefits of lodge membership with those of party membership. Initially, the old Prussian and some humanitarian lodges tried to coordinate by renaming themselves Christian orders and expelling all Jews. The Grand Master of the Drei Weltkugeln, the largest old Prussian Grand Lodge, stated that the changes were made to meet the requirements of Gleichskaltung in the National Socialist State. Unlike professional associations and student corps, Freemasonry could not coordinate that is, aligned with the party, because it was international and had nothing to offer the regime. There were enough professional and party-sponsored social clubs already in existence. If lodge members wanted social status and a place to network, they could join the party and its auxiliaries, like the NS Arzitbund, the Bund NS Deutscher Juristen, and the NS Lehrerbund. But Freemasonry, unlike a doctor's association, had no party equivalent and could not be brought into alignment with Nazi ideology, nor could it be allowed to make a few changes and continue under a new name. Freemasonry was thus denied Gleichschaltung, as were the Rotary Club, the International Order of Oddfellows, the Druid Order, and the Schlaraffia, though each organization tried to conform. Due to similarities with the Freemasons in structure, organization, and membership, the Nazis termed these other clubs Winkelogen or Logenlach, lodge-like, and closed them down along with the Masonic lodges. As an organization, Freemasonry could not compromise with the party. Individual Freemasons, however, could, leaving the party with the task of separating the acceptable from the unacceptable. Buck issued a mandate on May 15th. No Freemasons, that is, men who currently held membership at a lodge, could join or remain in the party. However, former Freemasons who had left the lodges before the seizure of power and had signed the Erkelung could, 
but were to be barred from leadership positions. An inquiry from the Sturm Abteilung, or SA, regarding Freemasons yielded a similar decree according to the will of the Fuhrer. The question remained at issue. Five days after the SA memo, a letter from the party office in Hartmannsdorf to the Russia asked for clarification regarding the membership application of Freemasons, pointing out that some of the surrounding towns were not following established policy, and asking if Hartmannsdorf could thus be a little more selective in its own enforcement. Part of the confusion stemmed from inconsistency in what was meant by the label Freemason. To Buck and the SA, Freemasons were men who currently belonged to a lodge, yet a general report on Freemasonry published by the party in 1934 stated a Freemason is always first a Freemason, meaning that current membership was irrelevant. Once a Freemason, always a Freemason. The statement caused confusion because it used the same word to describe both an individual and an ideology. The issue spilled over into civil service, where thousands of Freemasons were already employed. As party and government melded together, former Freemasons not only came into the party, but held leadership positions as well. In April 1933, the government passed a law on the re-establishment of the civil service. In addition to dismissing all Jews, the law left the door wide open for further dismissals, stating that civil servants whose previous political activities afford no assurance that they will, at all times, give their fullest support to the national state, can be dismissed from the service. Though conservative in comparison with its European counterparts, Freemasonry in Germany carried a liberal stigma, and many former Freemasons had at one time belonged to the Deutsche Demokratische Partei. Under the authority of the 1933 law on the re-establishment of the civil service, the party made use of Buck's Erkelrung as a tool to weed out suspected members. All civil servants were required to fill out an Erkelrung by September 1st of that year, and all new hires had to do so as well. The Berliner Tageblatt even printed a friendly reminder to all civil servants to complete the Erkelrung Authority to grant exceptions initially rested only with Hitler, but was gradually delegated to the ministers of finance and the interior and deputy Führer Hess. In January 1934, the party issued a general report stating that Hitler had become concerned with party integrity, especially regarding the admission of new members. After reminding the party of the need to maintain unity and racial purity, the report turned to the question of Freemasonry, reminding readers that the Third Reich had no place for secret societies, but that former Freemasons who had signed the Erklerung and had not discovered their National Socialist heart after January 30th could be candidates for party membership. However, they were to be excluded from holding office. Any camouflaged Freemasons, or those who hid their membership or refused to sign the Erklerung, were to be turned over to the party court. One party circular even included a sample, Dear John letter, to be sent to any party member who would have to be expelled. The report, naturally, generated waves of appeals for reinstatement from former party members and civil servants who had been dismissed because of lodge membership. In 1935, in response to these requests and petitions, Chairman von Moltke of the Bavarian Gaugricht sent out a newsletter answering questions concerning Freemasons and lodge-like organizations. But in settling those questions, he only generated others. To the existing requirements for allowing Freemasons into the party, or leaving before 1933 and signing the Erklerung, he added two more. Candidates must never have gone above the third degree, nor held a position of authority within the lodge. Those who qualified could join the party, but not hold office. Those Freemasons already in party offices must resign. 
Then von Moltke threw all of this carefully crafted clarification out the window in his next line. Exceptions can be made only through investigation by the SS security main office and personal endorsement by a Galeiter. The Fuhrer makes the final decision. Von Moltke's newsletter generated a new flood of letters from former Freemasons to Gauleiter asking for personal endorsement. In mid-1937, the party even drafted a decree that would have officially allowed former Freemasons to fill certain municipal positions, mayor, community association leadership, for example, in emergencies, but still bar them from more prestigious regional and federal positions such as judge, ambassador, or representative. The document never became official, and its existence alone is significant, showing what kind of ideas the party was toying with in order to solve the dilemma of former Freemasons in the party and civil service. The SD echoed such sentiments, lamenting that as intellectuals with above-average education, they are put in important positions because of their knowledge. Wherever there is a shortage of qualified people, they make themselves irreplaceable. The SD also noted that a strengthening of Freemasonic influence has proven that the edicts concerning them are not consistent and at the same time are not being carried out at all. The reasoning was simple. Freemasons were competent, educated, and useful employees. One SS report acknowledged the continued presence of former Freemasons at public office, but frankly admitted they are proving to be well-suited to the jobs and removal really isn't possible. Another stated that Freemasons remain because there is no suitable replacement, or because keeping them was more desirable for political reasons. When Germany annexed Austria in 1938, an act that was largely supported by the Freemasons in both countries, all the old troubles from the party's previous struggles over Freemasonry threatened to return. Austria, like Germany, had a sizable number of Freemasons, many of whom served in important political offices. Faced with the possibility of having to repeat in Austria the letters, petitions, and exceptions witnessed in Germany, Hitler, on April 27, 1938, granted amnesty to all Freemasons that had never gone above the third degree, never served in a leadership position in the lodges, and left the fraternity before the seizure of power or before the Anschluss for Austrian Masons. They were not guaranteed party membership, but their former ties to the lodges no longer served as an impediment to joining. German Freemasons greeted the announcement with jubilation, especially those in the old Prussian lodges. About a year after the amnesty, the RSHA commented that many Freemasons had taken advantage of the generosity of the National Socialist State and could be found striving earnestly to be full-fledged members of the greater German Volksgemeinschaft. And forgive my pronunciation on these things. One SD report tempered the good news with a warning. Some Freemasonic circles were spreading rumors that the amnesty was the first step in a general reevaluation of the status of Freemasons in the Reich, expecting that the party would one day see their complete mistake. Some Freemasons, however, rejected the amnesty, arguing that they had broken no laws and thus did not stand in need of amnesty. In June of 1939, Wilhelm Frick, Minister of the Interior, reaffirmed Hitler's April 27th decree and extended the amnesty to include the civil service. Any Freemason already in the civil service who had been born before August 1, 1917 could remain in the civil service so long as he signed the Erklärung. Former Freemasons in honorary positions were not under scrutiny, though future honorary appointments would be. The amnesty also declared that Freemasons in the civil service were eligible for raises and promotions on a case-by-case basis so long as they met the above criteria. 
The amnesty even had something to offer those Freemasons who had gone above the third degree or held lodge leadership positions in the lodges. Such individuals were promised that they would not suffer or incur any disadvantages, so long as they had left the lodges before Hitler assumed power. Even if a lodge member had left after January 30, 1933, he could be permitted in the civil service upon receiving a special dispensation from Hitler. The amnesty, one SD report stated, allowed the party to make up for having misjudged former lodge members, while at the same time allowing lodge brothers to atone for becoming Freemasons. The compromise was complete. The two amnesty decrees covered almost every possible combination of Masonic degree, civil service status, and date of lodge membership termination, and the statement exceptions permitted took care of the rest. After announcing the amnesty, of course, the party was swamped with new applications. As with all previous attempts at settlement, the amnesty created as many problems as it solved. Freemasons, who had been hopelessly excluded under the previous limits, now lay just outside them. And since the party had redrawn the line so many times already, it was not unreasonable to assume that continued pressure could get them to redraw it again. Even the SD recognized that the recent amnesty has made it possible for Freemasons, even those above the third degree and in leadership positions, to be allowed inside the NSDAP, despite the amnesty specifically excluding such men. The Thuringen SD office went so far as to provide a list of six former high-degree Freemasons in Thuringen who continue to hold party membership, political office, military commissions, or a combination of all three in an effort to demonstrate the problems of policy enforcement. The cases of Bruno Schuler and Alfred Westphal provide specific examples of the problems encountered in sorting out the party-civil-service-lodge triangle. Schuler joined both the fraternity and the party in the early 1920s. In 1932, he decided that it was impossible to hold membership in both and abandoned Freemasonry in favor of National Socialism. In a letter to his lodgemeister, Schuler expressed his deep regard for the fraternity, stating that he had believed old Prussian Freemasonry, being nationalist-minded, could eventually align with the party. However, after careful consideration, Schuler concluded that such a compromise was impossible and he had to choose one over the other. Schuler represented the type of man that Buck and Hollenbach did not want to see tossed out merely because he had once belonged to a lodge. The May Russia decree would have solved Schuler's problems if he had been only a general party member. Unfortunately for Schuler, he had recently been appointed Staatskommissar in Dortmund and therefore still found himself in hot water. Schuler considered himself a Nazi and had no desire to lose his position simply because he had once belonged to a Masonic Lodge. He gathered the documentation required by the Russia to retain membership, but also began a campaign to retain his position as Staatskommissar. Joseph Wagner, Gualtier of Westphalia, sent a letter to the Russia in support of Schuler's campaign. As evidence, Wagner dropped a bomb of an explanation for Schuler's Lodge membership. Schuler had joined, at Wagner's request, to act as a spy. Wagner claimed that he had wanted primary source information on the fraternity, untouched by either Nazi or Freemasonic propaganda machines, and had asked Schuler to secure the information. Everything in Schuler's case, Wagner argued, is completely in order. If Wagner was telling the truth, then Schuler's case was exceptional indeed, and illustrates the problem of Nazi policy regarding Freemasons. The policy was clear. No ex-Masons were allowed in leadership positions, but Schuler had entered the fraternity at the party's request. How could the party reward faithful members by expelling them for carrying out orders? 
but by granting an exception from Schuller, the party would be violating its own policy and establishing precedent. At the same time Schuller made his case to the party, his fellow Lodge brother and party member, Alfred Westphal, also scrambled to prove his loyalty to the Nazi movement. Westphal had stopped attending Lodge functions in 1931, a year earlier than Schuller, but his name still appeared in the Freemason Almanac as a member. Westphal, like Schuller, also held a government job. He was the Kreisleiter der Beamtenabab Tulung in Bochum, and served on the city council as well. The Rusha accordingly requested Westphal's immediate resignation in accordance with the policy. Emil Sturz, Bauckham's deputy Gualtier, appealed on Westphal's behalf, arguing that the listing was a mistake and that Westphal had the support of Gualtier Wagner. Westphal, Sturz claimed, had officially broken his ties with Freemasonry in 1931 and had signed an Urkelung. Additionally, Westphal had performed exceptionally in his duties as a civil servant. Sturz's appeal naturally stated his support for the May 15th decree that former Freemasons must not be put in positions of leadership, but he also argued it may be possible that party members who have held office for years in the movement should now be dismissed because of a long-forsaken membership in a Freemasonic lodge. Sturz closed with a statement that there were no reasonable grounds for Westphal's dismissal. Obviously, party policy was not reason enough. The dangers of setting this kind of precedent were not lost on the party. Three days after Sturz's appeal, the head of the Dortmund Russia responded, reaffirming the original party policy and quoting lines from the May 15th decree, which stated that no Freemasons were to be admitted into or allowed to remain in the party. The letter concluded with a warning that applying the policy in pieces, letting some Freemasons stay while kicking out others, rendered the whole policy invalid. This letter illustrates the extent of the confusion over policy, even in regard to the provisions of the May 15th decree. Sturz interpreted it as a typical political doublespeak. The party stood firm on its policy, but recognized that the policy might not be completely enforceable. Conversely, the Dortmund Russia took the decree at face value. Once again, the party could not agree on the issue of former Freemasons, and that could only work in the former lodge members' favor. At the same time as the party dealt with Schuller and Westphal, rumors began circulating that President Hindenburg was a Freemason, belonging to Bluhendis Tal in Hanover. Considering the strong historical ties between German Freemasonry and the Prussian aristocracy, it was not a stretch of imagination to believe that Hindenburg could have been a Freemason, and a rumor like this, if true, would have dealt a crippling blow to the party. The party, therefore, quickly launched a thorough investigation. Fortunately for the Nazis, the rumor turned out to be false. There was no such lodge chartered in Hanover. However, the report also made excuses for Hindenburg, suggesting that even if he had joined a lodge, it would obviously have been for reasons of protocol, like the Prussian aristocracy of old. That the party included this justification should suggest that even the investigators themselves were not totally convinced. They had only proved that Hindenburg did not belong to that lodge, not that he had never belonged to any lodge. Though Hindenburg's membership in the lodges was a myth, other high-profile politicians actually did come from the lodges. Arthur Greiser, a Great War veteran, Freikorps member, president of the Danzig Senate, and eventual Galeiter over Worthland, was a former Freemason. He left the lodges in the 1920s and rose within the party despite attacks regarding his former lodge membership. As a Gualeiter, Greiser had a reputation for being ruthless in his duties. 
hoping to make up for his previous affiliations and prove his loyalty by becoming a model Nazi. Karl Hoda provides another example of Freemasons joining the party. Despite the numerous roadblocks, Hoda was in the Stahlheim and the SA, but had to leave both when they found out he was a former Freemason. He was likewise kicked out of the military for his connection to the lodges. By profession, Hoda was a doctor, a useful addition to any group, military or otherwise. Hoda submitted an application to the NSDAP on July 14, 1939, and was quickly rejected because of his previous ties to Masonry. He appealed and eventually received Hitler's personal endorsement. On August 4, 1942, Hitler declared that Hoda's membership in the party was effective immediately and without reservation. In 1939, the RSHA reported that in Nuremberg alone, there were dozens of former Freemasons in positions of authority, some of whom had gone above the third degree. One former Mason, an architect, had designed a number of buildings for the party. The Breslau SD reported that a former Freemason was serving as a party judge, despite previous decrees specifically barring former Freemasons from serving in the courts. Even Dr. Otto Bordis, Grand Master of Zuden Drei Weltkugeln, secured membership only a month after the seizure of power. Each of these men demonstrated that Buck and Hollenbach were right. Most former Lodge members were not dyed-in-the-wool Freemasons and represented useful additions to the party and government once their Lodge membership was overlooked. So I'm going to stop here and then finish the rest of this in another episode. This is a pretty long article. So I hope you're enjoying it so far. It's very interesting. And I, again, apologize for my pronunciation on some of these German words. I know I'm probably not anywhere close. But um, I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. So if you want to actually pull it up and read it and maybe even look up what some of the terms mean, uh, it will be there. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.